namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa bhutang dhammang sankhang namasami This morning I was um, offering the reflection about uh, ordination and taking on the precepts uh, as a, uh, something to be reflected upon as renunciation and uh, a letting go, a relinquishment. Um, and uh, so in one sense it is that. It's a, a way of um, so recognizing one's preferences, one's habits and uh, conveniences and uh, getting a perspective on those and learning to, to let those go. But it also occurred to me uh, later in the day that um, also in, in another, uh, in another, from another point of view, the uh, going forth, the ordination, whether it's the eight precepts, ten precepts, or, or uh, more, pre, uh, more precepts, uh, as a sila or as a bhikkhu, that um, it's also a... Um, a way of say, uh, uh, living in accordance with uh, with Dhamma, and it's a, a way of, in a sense, embodying the wholeness of of Dhamma itself. So uh, we can think of relinquishment or letting go as some kind of diminution, or somehow we're we're sort of uh, letting go of things that were ours that did belong to us, and we're somehow reduced or diminished. We're where there's less, where uh, there's less that we have, but uh, from another point of view, uh, I would say it's a it's a way of letting go of the obstructions to our intrinsic wholeness, if you like. There's a, a sutra I like to quote very often with respect to the precepts, um, which is called the Upposita Sutta. Upposita means the uh, the moon day, or the, and uh, it's a, a sutta that. This is describing how the Buddha uh, conceived the uh, the principle of the uh, the lunar observance day, and uh, encouraging the particularly the lay community to take on the eight precepts as an observance for that day, as a, a form of practice for one day in the week in the the four lunar quarters. And um, and what he what he says in that in that particular teaching, he says. Uh, 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 if uh, the lay community, if they take on the the precept of not taking life, then uh, they will live as the arahants do, and that will be for their, their long-lasting welfare and happiness. And similarly, with not taking life, with celibacy, with not lying, uh, not in, in not using intoxicants, and uh, not uh, yeah, e- only eating in one part of the day, not using uh, entertainment, beautification, and adornment, and sleeping in a on a, a, a refraining from sleeping on a high or luxurious sleeping place. So each uh, each of those, he makes the comment: if uh, a person does this, then that they are living as the arahants do, and that is for their long-lasting welfare and happiness. So uh, in that respect, the, the the precepts taking on the precepts is a way of embodying the dhamma, is, is a way of embodying the enlightened heart, the enlightened mind, 
And so rather than a, a relinquishment or a letting go or, or a, a, an absence, um, uh, then from, viewed from that perspective, it's rather the uh, taking on the precepts is a way of formalizing uh, that fundamental nature of reality that is the, the, the foundation of this life, this, this heart, this mind, this, the nature of, of what, uh, what we are. So that uh, rather than being a, a, a lessening or a diminution, a, 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 a reduction of, of uh, what we are, what we have, in a way, it's sort of, uh, uncovering the uh, the wholeness, the, the the fullness, the the completeness of what uh, what we are, quote unquote, what we what is what is real within us. So I feel that's a, a helpful way of, of relating to the precepts and uh, understanding that. It's a different angle, but I feel that even though the wording of it is, you know, I undertake the precept to refrain from this, refrain from that, refrain from this, refrain from that, uh, it's helpful to to see that the natural disposition of an arahant is they cannot deliberately take life. Again, there's a couple of uh, suttas um, uh, that uh, where the Buddha points out the the, uh, the nature of an arahant, they, they can't deliberately take life. It's impossible for them to steal, it, it's, it can't happen. They, they're totally uninterested in sexual activity. They they can't tell a lie, and uh, so forth. So that uh, the the uh, adoption of the precepts is adopting the behavior of the arahant. And the Buddha points out by adopting the behavior, you're uh, in a way opening up the the, the door, or, or say revealing that in us, encouraging and opening up that in us, which is incapable of violence, which is which is totally honest, which is harmless and kind and uh, uh, unselfish, and uh, is a uh, sort of naturally uh, unneedy of any uh, particular things to. Um, to uh, say uh, uh, open up the, uh, the the door to that inner nature, so I feel that's a skillful way, another way of looking at taking on precepts, uh, and to, to uh, those of us who live according to the precepts, rather than uh, regarding it as a, a large collection of things we can't do, <laughs> to to look at it as a way, uh, these uh, a, a systematic way of revealing. Uh, what uh, what is already the reality of of this heart, this this mind, this this nature of uh, what we are? Another of the teachings are around the precepts that the the, the Buddha uh, gives that I also like to reflect on is where he talks about. In, in this instance, he's talking about the five precepts. In it's called the the streams of merit. That particular sutta that is in the. Book of the Eights in the uh, numerical discourses, the streams of merit. The first three in that particular group of eight is taking refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. It's a great stream, a great sort of current of, of metta, of blessing in our lives. And then the, the next five are the, are the five precepts. And he points out that uh, if you undertake the precept to refrain from taking life, this, uh, this brings... Uh, immeasurable, incalculable freedom from fear, freedom from, freedom from distress, freedom from anxiety to innumerable beings. And even though he's just talking about the five precepts in that context, I would say it applies to our, our lives as monastics, or as, as uh, anagarics, uh, siladara, uh, and novices, you know, all of the different strata of, of, of uh, monastic commitment, and also for lay practitioners, uh, the different say, levels of commitment and affiliation that one has with uh, the Buddha Dhamma, 
that uh, if one is taking that standard, then it's a, it's a source of blessing. It's a, a great gift, a mahadana. And so that uh, is called the giving of fearlessness. So if we undertake these precepts, whether it's a, the, uh, as a silatara, as a bhikkhu, as a samanera, as an anagarika, as an anagarika, as a layperson, uh, by the, the very fact of choosing to not take life, to respect the life of... We have these uh, very abundant little bugs that are doing extremely well this year, and their season seems to be lasting a really long time. <laughs> uh, I keep running across them in my kuti and all, all around, little, uh, little pointy-nosed uh, tiny bugs that uh, seem to be very happy to be anywhere and everywhere. <laughs> to respect the life of every single bug that we are, in that moment, we are bestowing fearlessness. Those bugs, I wouldn't project too much intelligence or discernment into the little creatures, but they can be sure that these, these, big, uh, these big creatures nearby are not going to cause them harm. They're going to, they're going to move them, they're going to move them as carefully and as kindly as, as possible. They're not going to uh, deliberately cause fear or distress or pain. So that's a gift uh, to keeping the precepts and that people don't have to protect their, their property when they come to the monastery. They don't have to hide their, yeah, hide their handbag under their, under their cushion or to, to worry that people are going to uh, uh, hurt them or, or steal from them or flirt with them or, or deceive them, to lie to them. So that is the, uh, the creation of a, a zone of ease, a zone of safety. And the animals also, they know they can relax around here and uh, they, they don't have to be too worried about the humans. I was very blessed to have a badger come to visit my, my bird bath outside my kuti. Was, I've never met a badger so close in my life before. So a uh, badger didn't seem to be the slightest bit bothered by my presence sitting on the bench and just came up, took a few sips of water from the bird bath and took off. So <clears throat> the creatures, they know these two-leggeds are not dangerous around here. Not, they haven't got any of those sticks that go bang and cause harm and pain that we are, we are safe to be around. So that uh, uh, is something that we can reflect on by, you know, just by keeping the precepts that we are, say, bestowing uh, a, a quality of ease and freedom and peace upon the, the other beings that we share our, our lives with. Now, it's, uh, this might be, uh, say, uh, talking in very sort of positive or, or uh, you know, optimistic uh, terms and uh, say, uh, looking at this side of, of our training, our practice. But I do feel it's important to consider this. Uh, it's very easy for us uh, when spending a, a lot of time in meditation or just living in community and working together, living together, uh, and the main focus of our of our lives here is is you know watching our minds, working with our minds, our our, our habits of thinking and and uh, action and so forth. And uh, it can be quite frustrating or uh, or challenging, uh, despairing to sometimes to, to to see the amount of of uh, work that needs to be done in order to to try and find peace and uh, and ease in our lives. I remember. Many years ago, when um, Ajahn Sajito made the comment that in the Tibetan tradition, they have the the nundro, the the, the training of a hundred thousand, uh, reciting a hundred thousand mantras, a hundred thousand visualizations, a hundred thousand prostrations, and he said in the Theravada we just have a hundred thousand frustrations. So it's the Theravada nundro of 
a hundred thousand frustrations. And it can feel like that. Uh, and we can get quite wrapped up in our own mind and just endlessly trying to work with the, our chattering thoughts and uh, you know, restless feelings and uh, qualities of impatience or anxiety, uh, uh, greed or uh, desire, uh, you know, irritation, jealousy, and, and so on and so forth. And uh, it can get very, very intense, uh, and we can get very despairing about the ability to to do anything, to make any serious I impact on our minds. And we can get so focused on the working with uh, the difficulties and challenges and the the uh, obstacles, uh, obstructions, and and uh, characteristics of our own uh, of our own our own mind, our own thinking habits. That we can forget, you know, what we're uh, what we're doing and the, the standards that we keep. Uh, many years ago, one, one of the very first community retreats I was on um, here in, in England, uh, I think it was about 1981 or so, and uh, at early days of Chidhurst, and it was before the, the the shrine room, what's now the shrine room at Chidhurst, had a big hole in the floor, sort of made by the dry rot, the flourishing dry rot in Chithurst House. The the Dummer Hall didn't exist, that was still a coach house. Uh, so we were all squished into what's now the reception room at Chithurst. The whole 25 of members of the community were all squished into the, that one room together. And uh, and we'd been uh, on retreat for about a week. And uh, I think uh, uh, Lumpur Sumedho was, was, wasn't challenged to read the room. <laughs> I could see that there was a sort of... Uh, Intense, somewhat anguished, stressful tone in the in the the community, and uh, so one day he got, he gave this re reflection, um, and uh, it uh, it was very very striking because uh, he made the comment uh, that <clears throat> isn't it remarkable? There's 25 people gathered here, and none of you have killed another human being this whole week. That's wonderful. What a, what, what a marvelous thing that that's not not everybody on the planet can say that. You know, you have not deliberately taken a human life this week. Congratulations, well done. This is a wonderful thing. And yeah, the first thought is, like, oh, <laughs> I hadn't really thought of that. And he said, and you've been celibate. You know, twenty five, mostly young women and men gathered together for a week, all up uh, uh, in the in the same room and, and gathered together. Uh, in close proximity for a whole week, and you've maintained the precepts of celibacy. Fantastic, wonderful, well done. This is not a small thing. This is a remarkable thing for human beings to do. Well done, satu, satu. And he went on in various different ways, as Lumpur can do, kind of riffing on that theme. And you could almost feel, or you could feel, <laughs> the mood of the room lightening. People say, oh yeah, right. Actually, yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, yeah, and not having noticed that fact that we were uh, working hard to live according to these very noble principles, but that had fallen into the background because of the uh, the mind being, say, drawn into focusing on the you know the endless chattering thoughts or the you know, recollecting, getting lost in memories of the past or planning the future and uh, and getting drawn into the various forms of, of mental proliferation, that, uh, that just seeing the, the effort that was being made, that the goodness that was being cultivated, just by restraining the, uh, the urges to, uh, to be violent or to be uh, sexually aroused or to be uh, selfish or, or greedy and hard-hearted or, or uh, 
lazy. Uh, and so it was a, a very powerful moment uh, just to be recollecting uh, that, that sort of background qualities that we can, uh, we can lose sight of and that we uh, are uh, so easily drawn into the, say, the, the emotions that we have, the thoughts that we have, the patterns of, of uh, fear or, or, and anxiety, the patterns of, of you know, regret and hope and, and, uh, or just busyness, just you know, planning and imagining and uh, being uh, over-focused on our list of things to do, that we... We forget the, our own goodness. What, what's drawn us to, to live together as a, a group of human beings, to shave our heads, put on robes, and live by the precepts to, to abide in a monastery where, to, in a place where there's the, uh, an absence of it. The, the, the biggest entertainment that we have is a library <laughs> and uh, the, the beautiful flower beds. Uh, you know, the, that's, that's about as colorful and as, uh, as, uh, as uh, say, uh, distracting uh, as uh, the sensory world can get in a monastery, or, the, or of course, there's always uh, food at the meal time. Yeah. But the, the the range of distractions are pretty limited. So uh, we we come to live an extremely simple life, and it's, I think it's helpful for us to remember what was the impulse that brought us here, to what moved us to come and live in a, such a simple way. What, what in us respects the standards of honesty and harmlessness? What in us what, it loves the good, that rejoices in, in kindness and, uh, and compassion? And it's so easy to forget that. It's so easy to get, get drawn by uh, our list of things to do or the, um, the, you know, being uh, fascinated by a per one person or anxious about another person and, you know, and lost in the, the, uh, the mind's creations. We, we can forget that. So one of the practices that the Buddha encouraged is chaganusati, to recollect your own goodness. And for people in the West, you know, many of us who've grown up in the, particularly in the sort of Judeo-Christian conditioning, to think positively about yourself is is almost, is is pretty her you know, heretical. <laughs> that uh, self-criticism or putting yourself down is almost encouraged or, or expected uh, in in the, the Western world as a, as a sort of a spiritual. Uh, part of a spiritual practice, but the Buddha did encourage that, to, to recollect your own goodness, chaganusati, to, to acknowledge your own generosity, your own kindness, as, uh, to, to look at that quality of, of goodness, uh, you know, that, that uh, you know, if you try to move one of these little bugs and you accidentally uh, appear to cause it some harm, the pain that we feel, that's a good pain, that's a, that regret of having hurt some little, little creature is... Uh, that's, that's good pain that shows that we really love and care for other living beings. That's important to us. And so that even though it's a painful emotion, it's, it's coming from a profound sense of, of, uh, of care and compassion. That's a, a beautiful, wholesome quality to rejoice in. And uh, all those years ago, it's more than more than forty years ago now. So if it was nineteen eighty-one, it's a long, long time ago. But that still sticks with me that that sense of of just having that reminder from from Lumpur, uh, telling uh, telling the group, you know, look, don't forget, you've uh, you've been celibate for a, for a week. You've been you haven't stolen anything for a week. You haven't killed anybody for a week. Well done. This is better than most human beings on the planet can. 
can uh, attest to. So don't ignore that, don't forget that. And then there's the change of mood in the room, that uh, there was a sort of, oh my goodness, look at that. So it's not to be inflated or to, or to um, say, uh, uh, get uh, egotistical about it, it's not to, to, to boost the ego, but to recognize the, the good that is being done, to recognize the, that, that love of the good that has brought us all here. That, uh, to not forget that, to not ignore that, I feel is very uh, important. And that's, I would say also, is an informing spirit behind what causes us to want to go forth or to live in a, a community like this, to spend our time living harmlessly, living simply, you know, having few needs and, uh, and learning to care for each other. So on that occasion, I, I, I'm, I, can't, I can't pretend I was really able to know exactly what was going on in everybody's mind, but certainly in my own mind it did shift the mood quite substantially. But sometimes even the, the, best, even the best kind of Dhamma instruction or encouraging words, they can't shift that kind of mood. It's, it's easy for us to get really uh, drawn into states of, of despair, of feelings of hopelessness as... There's no way forward. This is impossible. My my mind is just completely unworkable. This this is a, a absolutely uh, beyond my capacity to to do anything with. This is uh, it's more than I can do. It's it's beyond my abilities to really work with this mind. And that that's that kind of despair or hopelessness. That feeling of of um, uh, say powerlessness. It's not uncommon, and uh, even though I, I tend to be a sort of look on the bright side kind of a character, that I have had my own times of of, of that same kind of profound hopelessness and, and despair, and um, and living here with Lumpur Sumedho and him giving Dhamma teachings twice a day, <laughs> even and knowing you know, these are really inspiring teachings. This is wonderful. This is this is great. This is just what uh, is uh, is is uh, say the most uh, wise and, and powerful teachings in the world that the state of mind that had settled there in, in my jitta this was in the late 80s when I was living here there was something just wouldn't shift it was just this this feeling of of, uh, of pointlessness this is all just Theravada Buddhism and the chanting and bowing and the robes and the, the, all of the, the rules that we keep, the etiquette we have, it's all just a, a bad joke. It's just a pointless rigmarole. Why do we do all of this stuff? It's, a, it's just a, a, a complete waste of time. And, uh, and even, as I said, even in the presence of uh, Lumpur Zumaito giving Dhamma, you know, Dhamma, uh, Dhamma reflections every morning and, uh, and being around him and other uh, you know wise and kind members of the sangha I just seem to get more and more entrenched in this self-destructive negative mood and i remember one uh, one day i was actually reciting the patimokha uh, the the monastic rules thir about 13000 words that you do as a solo recitation and even in the midst of chanting all of the rules that we have in pali there's part of my mind the, the, the in the commentary box <laughs> This is a total joke. What, what do we do this for? This is a good pointless exercise. It's like 45 minutes of nonsense syllables. You know. and, and I'm also trying to remember all the words as I'm chanting at the same time. So it was, uh, uh, it was a, a, a strange time. It was, uh, a, it was very... Uh, uh, and the sense of 
dullness and numbness and, and heaviness and pointlessness was was very uh, very profound. It didn't seem any any uh, amount of wise words or, or encouragement from from outside could uh, have any effect on it. Uh, so I could see this this mood really set, settle, uh, settled in and was there for weeks and weeks. And I was trying all sorts of of different kinds of things to to shift it. Just getting busy. I was already pretty active. <laughs> Get really busy and volunteer for even more things, and and that didn't seem to make any effect uh, upon it. And I tried. Uh, uh, I thought, okay, I, I, this this is completely joyless. I need more joy, so I, I'll do. I'll just really focus on meta practice. Just kind of fill myself with positive energy and just meta, meta, meta. And it was that made it even worse. <laughs> it's like like a Lumpur Sumatra would say, it's like thinking pink. And uh, it was this sort of this profound bed of misery uh, covered over with this pink veneer. <laughs> what it made me think of was. Uh, uh, many many years ago, when I was a novice in Thailand, to tell another story. So I, uh, in the the, the monastery routines, uh, and still uh, to, as they do today at Wat Pa Nana Chat, the International Forest Monastery, and other monasteries, you don't make your own refreshments. There's like one or maybe two kettles of of hot, uh, drink, hot hot drink or cold drink that will be passed around at tea time and and everyone would share in the the drink that the the novice or the anagarika uh, the uh, whoever was looking after the kitchen uh, whatever they made and that whatever the novice or the anagarika chose to make that's what everybody had that day, that day. so i i i was kind of proud of my abilities as a, a sweet drink maker or drink maker and uh, at the same at that time um, in the same monastery, there was uh, uh, my fellow Samanera, was um, a French novice uh, called Tan Ginawaro, not the current French Ginawaro, an earlier French Ginawaro. <laughs> and uh, he was very, very, he was very serious, very caring person, and it was his turn to make the drink this, on this particular day. And uh, uh, so I was just sitting in my kuti and uh, waiting for tea time to come. <laughs> And then he appeared at the steps by my kuti and had this really anguished look on his face. And, and I said, "Oh, uh, you don't look you, you don't look very well. You know, what's the matter?" He said, "It is terrible." I said, well, "What's what's terrible?" The drink I made it is it is awful. It's terrible. I tried to do something with it, but it's it is awful. It's terrible. And I said, "Okay, don't worry. I'll fix it." So kind of. I came down the steps of my kuti and made my way to the kitchen and said, "So, so, what did you make? Yeah, what what is it that uh, that you've you've uh, brewed for the for the the tea, the hot drink today?" And um, at that time, uh, the former um, uh, uh, Tan Varapanyo uh, had he'd uh, been a great uh, had a, a very famously sweet tooth when he was a monk and uh, was uh, obsessed with sugar. Having disrobed and gone back to America, he got into a health trip, as it were. And so he'd sent this big care package. And we thought, oh, a package from Warapanya, this looks good. It was all filled with herb teas. And uh, to the chagrin of uh, a number of the venerables. <laughs> anyway, amongst these herb teas was a packet of wormwood. And uh, my dear companion in the holy life had chosen to make the tea with wormwood, which those of you who know... Uh, your herbs now is extremely bitter, um, and uh, 
the um, he made this big kettle of, of wormwood tea, and then uh, having taken a sip, realized, oh, this is this is this is pretty bad. So he tried putting some sugar in it, and that hadn't really helped very much. And I thought, okay, well, let me let me uh, let me work on this. And so I thought, well, maybe we can just completely cover the bitterness with even more sugar. So, so I kind of piled in you know, ridiculous amounts of sugar, and that, and that just was like this sort of layer of pink on top of a a bed of, of bitterness. <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe maybe try and uh, the, the extra sweetness isn't working. Maybe put some chili in. That's, Put some chili in just to kind of distract from the the awfulness of the mixture of the bitter wormwood and the and the oversweet sugar. That if we put some chili in, that'll kind of divert the attention. And so anyhow, uh, we we tried this, we tried that, and and eventually the, the expression on the venerable Chinawaro's face was getting worse and worse. And I said, well, look, just go back to your kuti and you know leave it alone. I'll, I'll take it and I'll I'll kind of pretend I'm the drink maker and. Um, and I'll I'll take the rap, so it's, uh, I'm not making any great claims, but it was uh, one of the great moments of self-sacrifice in my monastic training, because then I um, took it into the sala and then offered it to the ajahn to, and they sort of uh, poured out the drink, and then it, you know, it was each monk in, in turn, you know, filled the monks the mugs of each of the monks in turn, and there was this you know, this sort of spurting of of this foul liquid one by one down the line. And, and so Ajahn Pabakaro, Joseph Kappel, was the abbot at that time. He said, what is this? I said, it's a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, uh, nobody took more than about one sip. And, uh, so they said, go and make something else. So so I rushed off and, and uh, had to boil up a whole new dog of stuff. But... Um, that mixture of the the layer of of, of, of chili enhanced sweetness over a bed of of, of wormwood is, was that was somehow I was reminded of that in this particular period of trying to do piles of meta to overcome this miserable mind state. It didn't work. Anything I tried, it, it didn't didn't work. I, uh, it was just uh, sugaring it over, as it were, and that didn't didn't have any uh, helpful effect. And then uh, during that time, then uh, I, uh, I uh, one one night I had a an extremely vivid dream. And during this dream, uh, I've mentioned this a few times over the years. It was extremely vivid, and and I was in the, and it's it's uh, not very uh, palatable, as we say. But I was what I did was I was pulling off each of my my fingers. I pulled off my thumb and my fingers one by one, and I ate them. And even the taste of my fingers was bland. It was like a kind of gray, bland taste. So it didn't even, uh, there was not even any flavor, just pulling off the fingers of my hand. Then somehow I managed to pull the fingers off my other hand as well, even though the fingers on one hand, the left hand had gone already. But somehow I managed to pull the fingers off my right hand. So all that was left was my thumb and my index finger. Uh, and everything else was gone. And so suddenly this, this inner voice said, yeah, stop, stop, yeah. Uh, you're destroying the very things that are most useful to you. Uh, yeah, uh, and then I woke up. I thought, well, that was a message, <laughs> and uh, it was uh, um, it was uh, had a very powerful effect, uh, surprisingly, because it was 
all of the kind of the the the, the things to do or the the efforts that uh, or the ideas of what I should do to get out for me to get out of this um, this state then none of that had really helped very much but this in, in a way this uh, this insight or this sort of intuition had bubbled up well uh, from from within and sometimes the uh, me trying to do the right thing or me trying to work with my life or me trying to practice and me trying to get rid of this and, and become that it, it can get so busy and so theoretical or so much driven by i and me and mine the it's like the the team up in the commentary box are really kind of going full full steam you know, it's telling you what you should what's the right thing to do and what you should what's for the best that uh that they, your own intuitive sense, your own natural wisdom is uh, isn't able to operate, and so that uh, that simplicity of of the 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 in a way the intuitive wisdom recognizing the the patterns of uh, of thinking that are being believed in the the uh, the habits of mind that are being followed there these are destructive. You're you're destroying that. Uh, buying into these negative states and also the urge to get to get rid of them to, to, to fear them to hate them and to try and wipe them out that's only making it, it worse and the the attitudes of mind are are causing uh, increasing that quality of of destructiveness and harm and and uh, and difficulty and uh, and so that it was it was kind of, it was interesting because it was not through anything that i did <laughs> That the mood shifted, but rather it was that uh, that intuitive wisdom that emerged in uh, from that uh, uh, in that um, in that way in the Im the imagery of that that particular significant dream. So sometimes it's, it is that way that our our heads can be so busy with trying to fix things that our, our own natural wisdom uh, is being uh, obscured or obstructed. It can't function, and it has to emerge through some kind of uh, uh, say a dream state or a, or a nimitta, an image in meditation that the, it comes to the surface and, and gives a, a direction or helps to uh, resolve difficult situations when the when the of the the, the 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 habits of self centered thinking and self centered uh, say motivation uh, are just causing greater difficulty, greater confusion and obstruction. It was. Uh, uh, it wasn't really de deliberate. Uh, it wasn't certainly through trying to develop some kind of a practice. But what happened after that? Uh, the, the, it was a very impactful <laughs> uh, experience having that that, that uh, say vision, a visionary dream, or, or that vivid, uh, lucid dream of pulling my own fingers off and eating them. It's a completely crazy thing to do. That that kind of got the message through. <laughs> And uh, without me trying to replace that that attitude, what arose on its own was that, a sense of of recognizing, well, I'm I'm here. I'm a, I'm a monk. I, I live this life because I I love the good. Uh, I I rejoice in that. That's something that's delightful and and beautiful. And and then quite on its own, the thought arose. Again, I'm not making any claims or trying to sound the kind of. Uh, particularly self-sacrificial, but the thought that arose in my mind was, well, even if I have another 10,000 lifetimes that are completely bland and miserable uh, like this, like this has been, if I could just do one thing to help one living being in those 10,000 lifetimes, 
all that like all that time won't have been wasted. And uh, it wasn't really a deliberate thought; it just sort of popped up on its own. And and there was something that knew that it was absolutely true. That's that's a change of mood. <laughs> uh, and but it was uh, it was a um, uh, say uh, a revealing time uh, and uh, a uh, as a helpful direction that. Yeah, sometimes our very best efforts, if we're dealing with painful state, negative states that you know, longing or irritation or fear or um, regret and so on, they can be so unconsciously driven by the desire to become, the desire to get rid of, that we are we are unconsciously compounding the the very things that we are, are obstructed by or burdened by, and that. Um, Sometimes it, it's it's these kind of things that the intuitive wisdom emerges in that way um, through some event or some kind of circumstance of that kind. A, a more conscious, uh, uh, say, image that arose a few a couple of years later when I was in the solitary retreat in the forest at, at Chithurst, to um, speaking of sort of mental imagery and such like. Was um, that uh, so? That was that, uh, that experience had been very powerful and had helped the mind to to uh, say emerge from that sort of negative and self-destructive state. Uh, but uh, the um, it was still there was still a, like a strong sense of of me and my practice. And and uh, uh, I've been living at Amravati for about three years at this point. Uh, I came here in '85 and. Had been very engaged in uh, helping with the monastery and getting things um, established in its early early days, and then it was my tenth rains, and so there was only one kuti in the forest at, in Chithurst in those days, and people would get you know, get to take a turn <laughs> one at a time. And that was the only kuti in the forest that we had in that era. There were no kutis here; everyone was just in the the main buildings. So. Uh, uh, I had my my three months in the forest at Chithurst, and uh, so the the uh, the beginning of the retreat was the first three or four days was like one long exhalation, like ah, alone at last. You know, this is great. And then after about the third or fourth day, then I started to get right alone at last, and just me and the walls of my kuti and the the sky and the and the ground and. And just the uh, the momentum of life at, uh, at Amravati began to to sort of reveal itself. The momentum of my mind engaged with all kinds of of activities and responsibilities and and people and things. So the next ten days or so were extremely intense. Just um, the mind you know, filled with just looking for something to do, something to engage with, something to be in relationship to, kind of wanting to be something. So that was a extremely uh, uh, sort of challenging, difficult period. Uh, every day was an epic. <laughs> I get to sort of about five or six in the afternoon and think, "This was just one day. That was the morning. It was only like like ten hours ago. It felt like I've been. You know, each day was like a hundred years. And how many more?" How many more weeks have I got here? But uh, uh, as things evolved and uh, and uh, I began to just get used to that intensity of of the of the mind and in that mode, 
Uh, I could see that a lot of the issues was just how my my attention would get drawn into the patterns of thinking and would believe the, the thoughts that were going through and, and making things important. Things I loved, things I, I, I disliked, things that I regretted, things that I hoped for, things that I had opinions about, that the mind would get you know, really drawn into believing in its in its thoughts. And so once I had, in a sense, recognized, oh, that's a... Uh, a lot of this is being fueled. The intensity, or the kind of the sense of pressure, or, or, or uh, say the burdens, the burden of the mind is through believing in the contents of of thinking. Then I, that was a, the direction I, I began to 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 look, and was, could see that if the mind believes in its thoughts and took them to be real and solid, then there was that sense of pressure or intensity that's stressing. But when there was a recognition of this is just the, you know, the, like the, the pigeons crewing in the trees or the sound of the rain on the, on the, on the chestnuts, it's just uh, uh, the, the noises of the mind, then the things got a, a, a lot more spacious and, and peaceful. So uh, not to bore everyone with the details, <laughs> but uh, uh a couple, uh, a couple of months later, sort of well on into the, re the retreat time, and I was, I was doing a, a lot of sitting, so you know, hours and hours and hours at a time. And uh, I'd often find a spot in the forest to sit and just park myself for you know, three or four hours, four or five hours in one spot. And uh, on this, this one occasion, I was uh, sitting in this, this place, and my mind was, was very, very quiet. And I don't have a very visual mind. Yeah, maybe in dream states <laughs> these images pop up, but in meditation, usually all I see is the back of my eyelids. So I don't have. Uh, Lumpo Sumedho has an extraordinary ability to to visualize and has a lot of uh, color and form in in his meditations. But uh, I would just close my eyes and see the back of my eyelids, and that would be it. But on this particular occasion, again, not making any claims, but I was very surprised to see this fairly distinct mental image emerge after a, a couple of hours. So it was, you know, it was quite a long time into the retreat. So the mind was, and the whole system was quite settled and, and peaceful. And uh, uh, the image that took shape in the mind, and I was mentioning this in a, uh, an online Dhamma talk a, a week or so ago. So that's what, one of the reasons it comes to mind. So uh, the, I was, I pictured myself, or there was a picture of myself in the in the. The, the mouth of a cave. There was some kind of a, a cave in a mountainside. And in front of me, there was a vast starry night sky. And, <clears throat> and so I'm at the, at the edge of the cave, and there's this pull, this sort of draw uh, attraction to the, this great vast sky filled with sparkling stars. And this sense of, oh, I want to be out there, uh, out in the infinite uh, space of, of, of the universe. And as the, that feeling of, I want to be out there, I want to be in that space, I want to enjoy that freedom, uh, then as that I, I want to be or uh, feeling arose, there was this very distinct sensation of, of a shackle around my ankle, like a, a, like a handcuff or, or a leg cuff, you know, a shackle around my ankle and a chain. And I could feel this, this, um, my, my leg being fastened by this, by this manacle, this, this chain, and and so I couldn't leave the cave and I and merge with the the, the great infinite uh, uh, sky. 
uh, and then feeling that sort of that weight, that pull on my leg, then. But then uh, if there was a letting go of self, like letting go of uh, me who wants to be free, me who's uh, stuck uh, here, me being held down, me not able to be out in the void, then I could feel that the chain dissolving, that the, the kind of shackle would sort of disappear. And then there was a quality of freedom and then a sense of wonder. So there was a, the mind was able to attune to the space of the, of the, the starry void, the starry infinite sky. And then as soon as the mind thought, oh, now I'm free, and the, you know, the, the shackle, the, the, the I am came in, and then I could feel the, the chain on my, on my leg once again. So uh, I thought, well, that's interesting. As soon as there's, there's an I am, there's that, that bondage, and there's a, a me that's held back. As soon when, when the I am is let go of, then there is the, the, the wonderment of the, uh, of the infinite space, but no, no me who's enjoying it. <laughs> And so, again, I don't have a very visionary mind or visual mind in this way, but this thing, this image, sustained itself for a long time, like an hour or more. And, and just sort of going back and forth between the I want, I am, and then there's this, this feeling of, of being chained and shackled and then letting go of the I am. And then that, that quality of freedom, but no, no me who can enjoy the freedom. <laughs> no, no I who has got something. And so, uh, again, uh, just like with the, the, the dream of eating my hand, so it was, a, well, okay, this is a message. Uh, and that it was, a, it was extremely potent and helpful because it was, there, there had been this presumption, uh, and even though I've been a monk for 10 years, my 10th reign, so I've been in robes for quite, you know, 10 years. By that time, there was this, that sense of, you know, what what can I do to be free? I want to be free. I'm doing this in order for me to be free, and not really. Even though hearing teachings about uh, not self um, uh, on a daily basis, and with incredible, incredible uh, Dhamma teachings from Lumpur Sumedho and the other uh, great uh, ajans of our, of our tradition, not it hadn't really quite penetrated that what that I am feels like. It's it's nature, it's character, and how. Even though we talk about not self, or even giving teachings about not self, you're explaining it to other people. <laughs> Still, the mind it can can subtly and unconsciously keep creating that. I want to be free. If I if I do this, I will get that. And the the words or the ideas of not self are still creating that kind of uh, uh, of uh, say not having the uh, the profound effect of really freeing the heart from those self-creating habits that the, the words are there the ideas are there <laughs> but the but the the habit of identification is, is still going on in spite of the, the the words in spite of the 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 conceptual knowledge so that was a a, a very helpful powerful uh, experience in that in that respect and uh, was um, uh, really informative in terms of it's not just the idea of not self or being able to explain it uh, but that that actual tensing of the heart around the uh, even if the words aren't there that i want or i want i must the uh, that that uh, that say um clenching of the heart that, that grasping that uh, that conceiving the manyati is a, is a pali word for that 
That was a, a really a powerful and helpful opportunity to, to know that, that conceiving the I am being conceived and then recognizing when it's not conceived, there's a quality of peacefulness. And also realizing that the, the person is the prison, so that the, if we want to be free as a person, it's never going to happen, because <laughs> the person is the prison, that, uh, which might be disappointing. <laughs> But uh, in terms, in spiritual terms, I feel this is uh, very helpful to to open the heart to that, to to recognize that that that, it, that as long as the mind conceives uh, an identity, uh, a person, an I, then that that very conceiving that's that's the prison, that's the the thing that creates the limitation, that the chain around the ankle that is. Uh, uh, that is always going to condition that quality of confinement or limitation. Maybe uh, while I'm on the theme of, of uh, this um, dreams and visions and such like, just uh, uh, one, another one that comes to mind is kind of, um, uh, say, follows along from that. Um, was that even though that was that was an insightful time, once the retreat was over, <laughs> and I was back in circulation again, and uh, it was very um, uh, very easy for the I Am's all to come <laughs> come uh, rushing back in and to uh, re reconstitute themselves. So that was a, a significant moment, a helpful insight to to see that conceiving that manyati process as it as it happens but just by recognizing how it works by sort of seeing it once it doesn't mean that the the habit is thereby relinquished and uh, so um uh, another helpful um uh, uh, say set of uh, of circumstances that came about uh, again just on on the theme of of uh, significant dreams and uh, and visionary states not that dhamma practice has to revolve around these kind of things, but just while I'm on the subject for the evening. So uh, for years and years, I, there was a repetitive dream that I had. I'm not, I'm a, I, I would consider myself quite a non-violent person, um, and uh, the, you know, obviously, and also being a Buddhist monk, you know, we have a non-violent way of life. But in these particular dreams, and I had them ever since I was a, a teenager, there would be some kind of threatening presence or a presence that was perceived as, as dangerous or threatening and that I would feel, oh, it's, it's that person, oh, that's, that's a, a dangerous being or a dangerous entity. I've got to protect myself. And so this, uh, this had, I had this dream for years and years and it was never really clear what it was that was threatening. And again, as I said, I was not, uh, I didn't think of myself as a violent person. But in these dreams, I would be trying to protect myself. And sometimes I'd be throwing rocks at, at this, this person, this being, or sometimes I'd be punching and I could feel my fists sort of landing on this, this person or hitting them with a stick. And whatever I did in these dreams, the, the presence was always there and never seemed to be the slightest bit bothered by any kind of thing that I was doing, whether I was throwing rocks or hitting it with a stick or punching or sticking knife, you know, st you know, sticking a knife in, it was like, really? Oh, <laughs> oh now it's a stick. <laughs> okay. Last month it was it was rocks, 
and it seemed to have no effect whatsoever. But I always had this sense of fear. I've got to, I've got to protect myself. This is dangerous. This is, this is awful. This is difficult. And I would wake up and think, what was that about? Or what's going on there? And it never caused any harm. There was never any kind of difficulty or pain that this, this presence ever, ever um, caused in, in any of those those dreams. And so, it was uh, it was puzzling. And in every two or three months, I'd, I'd have another one of these, often in a different mode. And that and and then into monastic life. Well, and well into monastic life, I kept getting these dreams from time to time. I thought. Who you know, who is that that I, feel, I keep feeling threatened by, and why do I react so violently? And it, because it never actually does any harm, so why do I always do that? That's strange. It's weird. What, you know what's going on here? So uh, then, when I was on the, the my first visit to the states, uh, this was in 1990. Then I had another recurrence of this this particular the particular dream, and in this one, I was wrestling with this entity. And it was an extremely vivid dream, rather like the one with the fingers. It was extremely vivid, very colorful. I was like, okay, now it's that fighting dream, it's that battling dream. Now, and I was sort of locked in this, this wrestling hold. I was like, now, okay, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really awake, I'm alert in this dream. Now I'm gonna find out who it is that I've been fighting against. You know, all these years, you know, I keep being threatened by this, this strange entity. And and now, since this dream is really clear, really colourful, now uh, uh, maybe I can find out who it is that, that I'm fighting. And as these thoughts took shape in my mind in the dream, then the other being lifted their head up, and surprise, surprise, it was me, with a kind of a, a sort of kind of cheeky smile on his face. That surprised, <laughs> look who it is. So then, and then I woke up. Thought, well. That's interesting. Uh, you know, what, what was that about? And um, so that, uh, and for the look on the my my face, well, if that's me there, then who's this who's doing the the fighting from this side? So this is this is very strange. Um, but it uh, it uh, it was followed shortly after by a um, uh, another dream again not to dwell too much on these but just to complete the picture <laughs> so in, in this one uh that because that when that, i saw that that was me kind of looking completely undisturbed and with a with a sort of smile on my face and looking slightly surprise surprise <laughs> that uh that um i uh, say it was a, a cause for reflection like, hey, well what's what's this about there's something going on here there's some kind of a message here there's something that's not being understood and then uh, a little while later then it was a very similar dream but i was in the role of being thumped or being attacked i was the attacky and uh, the the other figure was um in this particular uh, dream scenario uh it had Taken the shape of, of someone who used to visit here, Amravati, back in the, uh, the old, uh, early days of the monastery, who was, uh, had a, a particularly egotistical character. I wouldn't say that he was uh, 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 an egotistical person necessarily, but the way he manifested and expressed himself came across as a very kind of pompous, proud, arrogant, sort of professorial type. Like, you know, I know everything, kind of. So it was a sort of archetype of the 
of a of pride and, and conceit and and ego really it was a kind of embodiment of ego and so in this particular scenario then the, i was being attacked by this other person and 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 then as this other being was was attacking me i was in the kind of in the role of that mysterious figure and no matter how much he sort of thumped me or, or hit me nothing nothing bothered me i wasn't the slightest bit anxious or frightened or didn't wasn't uncomfortable i thought oh poor fellow he's really upset he seems to be quite enraged and affronted and oh poor guy <laughs> wonder what uh, uh wonder why, why he's so upset so uptight because it had no no effect on me whatsoever and so then okay well this is a bit pointless standing here being thumped point that he doesn't even hurt very much i'm not very worrying or difficult and so i just so sort of, okay well i'm gonna take off and and i walked away uh and uh, anyway, I won't bore you with the rest of the scenario. But uh, so when I woke up from that, I thought, well, okay, that is very interesting, and it seems to be a, a partner to that earlier, earlier dream. And what it, it uh, reflecting on that because it was extremely clear and vivid. Again, I felt it was this the inner wisdom, as well the the intuitive wisdom trying to come to the surface while uh, the the the. Uh, too much activity going on in the in the up in the the the, uh, the head and the mind distracted this kind of change of perspective that was uh, very significant very uh, very important in terms of, of dhamma was uh, kind of showed itself in the in this succession of, of images and so that it was really to me it was pointing out how uh, as long as we we live from a a, a position of self view then the dhamma is or nature reality is this sort of threatening thing that i've got to establish myself against i'm i'm threatened by the way things are i've got to assert myself i've got to uh, i want to make sure i'm okay and that the the way things are doesn't intrude or doesn't distress or doesn't uh, interfere or upset and so uh, then in this say the this is how i i read it and any of you who are um interpreters of dreams or, or therapists might read this in a completely different way <laughs> so i'm open to alternative versions um but uh the way that it was read was that that when the the mind lets go of self-centered thinking then and takes a dhamma-centered perspective rather than a self-centered perspective then that's what was happening in this kind of dream state is that the ego is sort of thumping away at at reality trying to protect itself or assert itself and reality is like oh Poor, poor thing. Why are you spending so much energy? Why are you getting so distressed trying to assert yourself? This is all a bit, all a bit pointless. Uh, again, I'm not making any kind of claims or, or um, uh, assertions of uh, of attainment or anything. But it just—I mean, I was dreaming at the time. So, uh, I don't, know any, don't think anyone's ever been enlightened in a dream state, at least that I know of. But uh, it was, in a way, symbolizing. A very, I feel, a very helpful and important aspect of Dharma practice that if we are embodying or taking the, a self-centered perspective on life, then it's rather like that, you know, feeling threatened, having to defend yourself, and you know, pointlessly uh, thumping away at this threatening way things are, <laughs> needlessly. Uh, and that if we let go of those self-centered habits and we we instead live from a Dharma-centered perspective, we we. Uh, 
uh, embodying Dhamma, being being Dhamma, recognizing that you know that which knows the person isn't the person. That which that uh, the, the 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 heart is is not a person. The mind is not a person. The mind is, is Dhamma. Then that there's a, a sense of invulnerability. There's a sense of ease and spaciousness. There's there's no danger. Nothing can be lost. Nothing nothing can be harmed. That the the Dhamma has is is the refuge. Is the, that which is um, secure and stable, invulnerable, inviolable. So that uh, 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 again was a, a powerful uh, insight. That sort of was, and I think, <laughs> happened despite my best efforts in in the meditation hall. But uh, uh, the uh, uh, I feel that sometimes there are these significant images that bubble up to the surface, whether it's in a meditation state or whether it's in a through a dream or a vision or, or uh, wh whatever uh, source it might come from, that, that once in a while these are very trustworthy. They have uh, beneficial effects. And that, uh, that uh, t to me, it was, was very uh, helpful because it, uh, rather than the... The, the the framework or the format of, of practice being me practicing the Dhamma or um, me realizing the Dhamma in that shift of, of perspective, that sort of change of, of roles in that, uh, symbolized in that imagery, there was, uh, rather than uh, me realizing the Dhamma, it's the Dhamma realizing the me, the, the awake mind recognizing all those personal qualities of being a woman, being a man, being old, being young, being tall, being short, being healthy, being unhealthy, being excited, being unhappy, being uh, being uh, lazy, being uh, being uh, focused. That which knows the, those personal qualities isn't a person. It, it's a, a, an awake, aware quality. That's the, the Buddha refuge, that, that awake, aware wisdom that is the... the the primary function of of Dhamma, the Buddha arises from the Dhamma. The awake mind, the awakened awareness arises from the the Dhamma, which is the the foundation of reality. So that uh, uh, it was uh, one of those uh, those those times. I remember. Um, I think that was about 1991. So it was the year after I'd had that initial. Uh, of waking up and, and finding myself as the opponent in the in that wrestling match, it was about a year later that, I, that this other dream came about with the the proud and pompous professor. <laughs> purple, he was kind of purple with affronted pride, it was like kind of enraged, and it was like a perfect symbol of the ego. Like, don't you know who I am? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, I do. And uh, that uh, that was a, a very uh, uh, say helpful because and and I feel that all of us can reflect on that when we are framing the practice in terms of me practicing me working with my mind, it it uh, it becomes so personal. And as uh, Lumpur Sumato often says, encourages don't take your life personally. <laughs> that that in the in the heart which can recognize. These thoughts, these feelings, these uh, these moods that are happening here, these perceptions that are felt here, but we don't have to personalize that. There's, there's not. We don't have to create a a person out of that that flow of perceptions, that experiential field. And uh, 
So just uh, again, just taking a simple statement like don't take your life personally, if that's really embodied, if that's taken seriously moment by moment, you know, this chain of thought, this memory, this plan, this, uh, this heaviness of the heart, this excitement, uh, to, to reflect, this isn't a person, it doesn't belong to a person. It's, uh, it's just a, a pattern uh, of nature, like the shape of a leaf or the, the flow of a, of a stream, uh, the, the movement of a cloud. That, that's what this is. Uh, we call it a, a person out of convention and habit, but it, uh, to, to not take our life personally, <laughs> then that's the, uh, the way that we are living from a Dhamma-centered perspective rather than a, than a self-centered perspective. And the result of that is that quality of ease and freedom and uh, uh, spaciousness, a sense of, of uh, say, unboundedness and invulnerability that nothing nothing can shake that nothing can disturb that that's the imperturbable the anenja so i offer these thoughts for consideration this evening <laughs>